0: Certain information set forth in the podcast may contain forward-looking statements under applicable security laws. These statements are not guarantees of future performance, and undue reliance should not be placed on them. Although forward-looking statements contained in this presentation are based upon what management of the company believes to be reasonable assumptions, there can be no assurance that forward-looking statements will prove to be accurate. LifeSite advisors and the company undertake no obligation to update forward-looking statements in the podcast should circumstances or management's estimates or opinions change. This podcast is for general information purposes only. It is not an offer or solicitation to buy securities and does not constitute investment advice.
1: You could ultimately target half of all cancers with a well-tolerated, successful MDM2 inhibitor, either as a monotherapy or in combination settings. So the opportunity to address a large patient population with a well-tolerated program for many cancers with very large unmet needs is very exciting. And that's why milademetan we think, is a truly exciting molecule.
0: Hello, my name is Neil Canavan, and this is Benchtop Bios, a podcast series by Lifeside Partners, where we introduce healthcare investors to the people and the pipelines driving the biotech sector forward. Today, my guest is Avanish Valunki. He is the co-founder and CEO of Rain Therapeutics. Avanish, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. All right. First things first, let's ground our listeners in the company we're talking about. Give me the elevator pitch for RAIN. What do you do? Where are you?
1: RAIN Therapeutics is a precision oncology biotechnology company based in the San Francisco Bay Area. And our lead program is a phase three candidate for treatment of liposarcoma with an oral small molecule MDM2 inhibitor, which we expect to have data in the first half of 2023. And hopefully, if successful, could represent the first MDM2 inhibitor to market.
0: Splendid, nice and short and clear. Okay, now let's begin at the beginning with you. Sir, where were you born?
1: I was born in India, in a large city called Hyderabad, which is central southern India.
0: And when did you come to the United States?
1: My family came in the late 70s, and my father came for graduate school at the University of Minnesota. And I grew up in the Minneapolis suburbs with all my educational career really in the state of Minnesota before leaving for Wall Street in New York.
0: Okay, so I admit some ignorance here of the state of Minnesota. All I really know about Minneapolis is Prince, and all I know about the state of Minnesota is Wild Rice. So give me one cool memory from, let's say, high school. What were you doing in high school? What was cool?
1: High school was a lot of tennis, it was a lot of watching football, the Minnesota Vikings. It was some fun. Of course, the
0: Vikings. Yes, how did I forget?
1: And learning how to deal with a absurd level of cold was my <laughs> in Minnesota.
0: Yeah, very similar to no part of India that I'm aware of. <laughs> okay, so let's go to your education. You started your undergrad at a place called Carlton College, which is not far from Minneapolis. Curious note here, this was actually founded in 1886. So that's pretty old for considering Minneapolis was in the state for that long. You were a Let me see. Class of 97, biology major. Why biology? Does that have something to do with dad?
1: It didn't have anything to do with dad. It had a lot to do with my grandfather. My grandfather was a celebrated physician in India. And the story is that I was actually raised by my grandparents before coming to the U.S. when my parents came ahead of me to the country to set up a life. And so my grandfather had an extraordinary impact on my life and taught me the love of sciences.
0: Oh, cool. All right, so you continue with that interest in science at the University of Minnesota, home of the Golden Gophers. I don't know if they contribute to the Vikings at all. This school was founded in 1851. Again, this is seven years before Minnesota was a state. So kind of cool. Huge school, 50,000 students. Pretty cool model. Let's see if you know what it means. Latent commune vinculum omnibus artibus. Any idea?
1: I don't know what that means.
0: (laughs) A common bond for all the arts which I really like. It was also rated as an excellent science school. So while you were there, you earned a master's in biochemistry. What was the interest? Was there like a big move in biochemistry at the time? I think maybe any sense was going on. What was your interest?
1: There was certainly a tremendous passion for the sciences, but not necessarily clinical practice. So while medical school was one avenue to leverage interest in science, that wasn't really necessarily my route. And so I was trying to understand a better way to leverage my interest in the sciences, the biological sciences, apart from going down the medical school route. And that's where the graduate degree in biochemistry helped me understand new ways to apply those scientific principles to a career.
0: So if you had ruled out being a doc, what was the plan? you would be a
1: scientist at the bench? It's a great question. There was no plan. At the time I <laughs> doing the biochemistry program, it was truly academic passion and interest in terms of how it was going to translate to a career, that wouldn't come until later. It wasn't until towards the end of that program. And when we started seeing the dot-com boom in the Mm. market really prosper, we started seeing biotech companies, genomics companies, assay companies really skyrocket. And then it was pointed out to me by my father, which uh, always had tremendous career advice for me, of the observation that Wall Street research analysts were actually scientists. They weren't business people. Ah, and so Wall Street research analysts had MDs, PhDs, and and there was more scientific dependency on the success of those businesses than earnings per share. So that's how my career shifted from the core sciences, leveraging those core sciences, but applying it to the stock market.
0: Okay, and this leads to the next obvious stare on your climb, which is an MBA at the University of Minnesota. This was class of 2004. Now, I see from LinkedIn, you were the president of the Finance Club, and you earned the Kidwell Leadership Award. So you began your studies in 2002. Enron, that scandal was in 2001. Did that come up in Finance Club?
1: Not as much. I think there was a lot of issues to address back in the wake of the dot-com bust. Mm -hmm. The market was really strained all around. And I think what really compelled me to really take the finest club by the horns and really try to establish my own leadership capability were in very influential leaders like Warren Buffett. Warren Buffett was very vocal back in those days, certainly when a lot of these companies fell back to earth and the market gave up the craziness around speculative businesses and a reversion back to value-oriented companies. And we had a great event at the University of Minnesota, which I led the finance club of leading a group of students down to the Berkshire Hathaway annual shareholders meeting. So driving from Minneapolis down to Omaha, I took a a large group. We went down to Omaha. We got to meet Warren Buffett. There was plenty of photos. There was photos in the paper back in the Minneapolis Star and Tribune, the major paper in the Minneapolis uh, Twin Cities area. It was rather a celebrated event. And I think leading events through that, those types of experiences, giving students really a visible type of an experience with a Berkshire Hathaway type of an event helped to show that we were going to be aggressive, we were going to hustle, we were going to make things happen as a finance club and really get outside the bounds of a t- just a traditional type of club environment.
0: So you take the bull by the horns, Wall Street bull, that works. Your first job out of school is with Bear Stern. New York City, you were VP of Equity Research. This is 2004. You know, well known firm, World Capital of Finance. You met Warren Buffett. I mean, was this daunting?
1: It was daunting. And I think what was extraordinarily daunting was getting hired to a Wall Street bank coming out of Minnesota. Yeah. It wasn't exactly a top recruiting school for all the large Wall Street investment banks. So obtaining that internship. Getting a full-time offer took a tremendous amount, and I'm very proud of what hustling can achieve when you do take the bull by the horns. I think that's one of the traits that has defined my career.
0: Crazy hours?
1: Crazy hours, and I made them even crazier because I knew in that internship period before being offered a full-time job, I had to really make a name for myself. When given the full-time position at Bear Stearns, had the tremendous privilege of working with some truly celebrated research analysts that taught me the industry. And looking back at my career, it was in those early days where the senior research analysts helped take apart companies that we were covering, stocks that we were covering, looking at management teams, what worked, what didn't work, how they marketed to investors. It defines much of the skill set that took me through all the way, ultimately, to founding of Rain Therapeutics.
0: I mean, although that was, as you describe it, a very fruitful experience, there was a matter of timing involved here, and timing can be everything. You dodged the financial crisis bullet that killed Bear Stern in 2008. You left and went to City in 2006. You were there for two years, VP of investment banking. Were you encountering healthcare investments opportunities at that time?
1: Absolutely. The transition from Bear to City, and the transition from sell-side equity research to investment banking, was a big one. They're very different skill sets. And at Bear Stearns, it was opining on companies, those that we thought were going to be successful in marketing it to investors. But you were on the public side. All the information we received was publicly available information. Then moving over to the banking side, it became confidential information. You became the trusted advisor to CEOs and helped them build companies. You helped them do financings. So you helped them do acquisitions. Two different sides of the investment banking business and I think I came out with those two experiences with a few skill sets. Number one, what is most compelling for investors and understanding a biotech story? And on the banking side, how to get a deal done, how to market a deal and how to structure an agreement. So those two skill sets were tremendously valuable for my Wall Street experience.
0: But then you leave Wall Street. You go on to be the Senior Director of Corporate Development at a company called Proteolix in San Francisco. This is interesting. This company was founded by Craig Cruz, who also founded our Venus. He Craig is still at Yale. How did this opportunity come about? Why did you leave banking?
1: There were other members in our network from the bank that transitioned out of banking to Proteolix. And they asked me to join. And Proteolix was a tremendous story in that their program was addressing a very big problem in that therapeutic category. They were pursuing multiple myeloma. Mm -hmm. There was a standard of care called Velcade at that time, Bortezomib. It was a Mm -hmm. proteasome inhibitor. But there was a specific tolerability challenge with proteasome inhibitors back then. And proteolics came up with a better molecule. They came up with a molecule that didn't lead to some of the, the tremendous side effects that the prevailing marketed therapy had, not too different from what we're doing at Rain today. And based upon the improved tolerability of that Proteolix program, a drug called Carfilzomib, Mm -hmm. it's now branded as Kyprolis and improved on the market. Proteolix was acquired within a year of me joining the company. So tremendous success, tremendous therapy that we believe is helping a number of patients.
0: So, I mean, you were barely warm and got the seat warm and all of a sudden it's sold. What was the take-home message for you there? Right place, right time or...?
1: It was the right time to sell the business. Looking back on it, of course, this was 2009, right upon the housing market crash in the economy. It was a challenging time for biotech companies. Unfortunately, the IPO market wasn't open and keeping companies, even great companies alive was a challenge. Proelix had a tremendously efficacious molecule and a strategic exit at the time was absolutely the best route available to it. Looking back at it, I think we would to try to find another way not to have sold the company given how successful the molecule was, Yeah, but you do the best you can with the information at hand.
0: All right. So you leave there, one assumes with a nice paycheck. Then you go back to finance. You were at WebBush. You were looking at biotechnology investments. You were there for a couple of years. This is also San Francisco. Then back into industry, Aptos Biology. This is another oncology company. CBO, three and a half years, San Francisco. And then 2017 came the rain. So, relive that moment for me when you and your co founder, Bob DeBell, said, you know what? Let's do this.
1: The founding of rain was marked by a couple of observations in the industry, I think, which are pretty important to recount. And it really started for me, and Bob and I came at it from different sides of the coin. For me, with my Wall Street background, I saw a lot of companies develop cancer therapeutics and I saw that the way that they used to do it, there was a lack of precision in terms of a strategy for developing programs. There was a tendency to take a cancer therapeutic and throw it against the wall against a variety of indications and then see what stuck. So try it in in a variety of cancers and see where it worked best there wasn't as much prospective thinking around the patients that ought to respond best. So there was no precision strategies. There was no biomarker approach back in those days. And back in those early days, you can imagine the cost implications of just running multiple large clinical studies to try to figure out what works. It's not a great ROI for investors. It took a great deal of time and resources out of these companies. So ultimately from my side, I thought biotech could develop drugs in a better way. And that's where I started viewing that precision oncology was really the most rational way to pursue biotech drug development. Now, Bob, Bob and I became partners because he had the same thoughts, but he was on the clinical side, predicting outcomes for patients genetically, understanding those patients that are genetically predisposed to respond is the best thing for the patient it's gonna give a patient the best odds of success, the best odds of avoiding de- uh, debilitating toxicities. So from the clinical side and from the business side, we put our heads together and came up with a business that could really make it its mission and its religion to pursue precision oncology therapeutics.
0: All right, so let's talk about the company you created and its lead asset it is called, let me see if I can get, get this, Milademetan. how was that? Milademetan. Melidimetan, all right, yes. close enough. Fortunately, it's also called RAIN32, so I'm going to stick with that. This drug is an oral MDM2 inhibitor, which we're investigating in four different indications. So the obvious this question here is, why are you putting so much energy into this target?
1: MDM2 inhibition is a tremendously exciting mechanism, and it's not new. Other companies have pursued programs to target MDM2. MDM2 inhibition is ultimately a play on a very important transcription factor called p53, called the guardian of the genome. And so targeting MDM2 is a way to reactivate p53. And that is ultimately the goal of this mechanism. The reason why it's exciting and the reason why so many companies have invested so many resources into this mechanism is because you could ultimately target half of all cancers with a well-tolerated, successful MDM2 inhibitor, either as a monotherapy or in combination settings. So, the opportunity is tremendous. The opportunity to address a large patient population with a to- well-tolerated program for many cancers with very large unmet needs is very exciting. And that's why milademetan we think, is a truly exciting molecule.
0: All right. So, this is RAIN32, as I mentioned. This sort of implies there was a RAIN31. Was this developed in-house?
1: This was not. This was licensed from Daiichi Sankyo, Daiichi Sankyo's code name for the drug was DS3032. We just kept the last two digits and called it RAIN32.
0: (laughs) I just have to mention a bit of trivia. Part of the mechanism here I was looking it up is also protein degradation, which is exactly what Craig Cruz is doing now. So you kind of come full circle mechanistically. All right, so I mentioned there are four programs. The indications are in order of developmental progress are liposarcoma, Then there's a basket trial of patients who are MDM2-amplified, then Merkel cell carcinoma, and finally, patients with the loss of cyclin-dependent kinase, or CDKN2A. Is there a mechanistic through line here? I mean, Merkel cells sort of has to do with the virus, liposarcoma, not so much.
1: There definitely is a thread. And and our strategy with the underlying thread is to identify tumors that exhibit dependence on MDM2. Now, various cancers can have various degrees of reliance or addiction to different components. And so we're looking for those specific cancers through one mechanism or the other demonstrate some sort of addiction to MDM2. And all of those four opportunities that we just discussed have an addiction or dependence through a different mechanism, and we can review them. Liposarcoma and the specific subtypes of liposarcoma that we're pursuing are MDM2 gene amplified. So there's a meaningful degree of amplification of the MDM2 gene in those specific patient subtypes. And that's why we believe those patients are MDM2 dependent. Mm -hmm. Of course, our second study is now going beyond the scope of liposarcoma to any tumor type that has a high degree of MDM2 gene amplification. The thinking is, if a cancer cell is going through the work and the strain of amplifying a gene that contributes to its cancer, it is a pretty important amplification. It could be the oncogenic event. So targeting that oncogenic event is going to, we hope, lead to a beneficial outcome. So both the first two studies that are ongoing, enrolling in clinical sites in the U.S. and for the lead program in liposarcoma also in Europe and in Asia, they're all MDM2-amplified patients. Now, trial number three, Merkel cell carcinoma, has a little bit of a different mechanism because that is induced by a virus. About Mm -hmm. 80% of Merkel cell carcinoma patients exhibit MDM2 overexpression because of a virus. The Merkel cell polyomavirus in Merkel cell leads to greater levels of protein, not necessarily gene amplification, but more protein. Mm -hmm. So in both a virally induced overexpression or a gene amplification route, there's more MDM2. And more MDM2 is the problem that we're trying to address and the fourth trial so the fourth trial is an absolute continuation on that so cdkn2a loss leads to dependence on mdm2 cdkn2a encodes for a natural regulator of mdm2 you can call it a natural inhibitor of mdm2 so if you lose the natural inhibitor you get more mdm2 so all four of these studies all are unified in the thinking that they all exhibit mdm2 dependence or an addiction
0: all right so I need to unravel this just a bit more. For the four trials, do you enrich trials through biomarker identification, or is it just known that liposarcoma, you're going to have this anyway? How are you enriching trials?
1: That's a great question. So in liposarcoma, with the two subtypes we're pursuing, there's no need for any genetic identification because all patients have gene amplification. So it makes it a little easier, and no companion diagnostic is needed. In the second study, we do need the help of an assay because we're looking across tumor type. Any tumor types that have MDM2 gene amplification, we partnered with Tempus and Karis, two leading vendors of diagnostics, to help identify those patients. For trial number three, again, Merkel cell carcinoma, that virus virally induced cancer, we're looking for the presence of the virus. So we can test for the virus as a predictor of MDM2 dependence. And then finally, in that cdk 2 a loss, that's another genetic test. So if you've lost that genetically as detected by one of these assay vendors, you could enroll in, the, in that study.
0: So Sloan-Kettering is almost walking distance from where I am. If I went in with a symptom profile that warranted such testing, would that be standard?
1: Absolutely. Memorial Sloan-Kettering use next-generation sequencing, the MSK impact testing. Right. Uh, absolutely.
0: All right. So let's drill down on the trial. These trials are thankfully very simply titled, they are Mantra and Mantra 2, 3, and 4. So let's talk about Mantra 1, if you will. This is an enrollment of 160 patients. It's a phase 3 trial. There are two approved drugs in the standard of care. Both of them are kind of crappy. So what's the trial design here and what kind of PFS or overall survival do you have to hit to beat the standard of care?
1: Sure, and and you said it absolutely correctly, Neil, that unfortunately for patients, the standards of care in liposarcoma in the second line and later settings, which is where we're going, are rather low. Published data suggests a median progression-free survival of between two and 2.2 months, so very, very short. And so the design of the study is aimed to compare our drug against one of those standards of care, and the comparator is a drug called Trebectadine or brand-named Yondelis and the medium progression-free survival, again, 2.2 months in the published literature. We've designed a head-to-head comparator in a study that's one-to-one randomized, 160 patients overall, so about 80 patients per each arm. And we've designed the study to show a doubling of progression-free survival. So it is statistically powered to show a hazard ratio of 0.5, so a doubling of PFS from the standard of care. So with a 2.2 medium PFS for the standard of care, if we're 4.4, or better, we could get the appropriate p-value for success. Was there phase two efficacy data? Yes. There was a large phase one. So from oh, okay. Daiichi Sankyo, they completed a very large phase one study called the U101 study. And they showed in liposarcoma patients, the median progression-free survival was 7.4 months in the preferred dose in the schedule that we're using. So that is the reason that we embarked on this path and why we moved as quickly as we did from phase one to a phase three trial design, because we thought we could bring this therapy to patients quickly.
0: All right. So you already have your safety data in hand. Any concerning signals?
1: There is a, for all MDM2 inhibitors, MDM2 inhibition leads to a specific set of on-target toxicities called the cytopenias, thrombocytopenia low platelets, neutropenia, anemia. These are toxicities that have actually plagued the MDM2 landscape. And so, as I said earlier, that MDM2 inhibition is nothing new, and others have tried in this space. Others have tried, again, because of the opportunity, but prior programs have had a poor tolerability window that has prevented them from sustained dosing of patients. So patients ultimately would have needed to dose reduce, many patients discontinued, and that led to loss of efficacy. We view safety or tolerability Explicitly intertwined with efficacy. Patients can only stay on a therapy that they can tolerate. And so safety matters. (laughs) Safety matters quite a bit. Now, Daiichi was spectacular in doing some of the work to identify a specific way to dose this molecule and based upon the properties of this drug. Every MDM2 inhibitor needs to find a way to dose that molecule specific to the properties of that molecule. Daiichi's modeling exercises suggested that this drug could be successfully dosed for three days, continuous dosing, with 11 days off. So three days on at a high dose to kill tumor cells, induce apoptosis, but followed by 11 days off where patients' platelets and blood cells could recover. Okay. So that one-two punch was speculated to lead to efficacy and improved tolerability through their modeling efforts. When they did the phase one, they tried this it appeared to reproduce their modeling outputs. So the on-target toxicity of thrombocytopenia grade three fours was about 15%, which we believe is a positive level of thrombocytopenia relative to the landscape at at the time that we licensed the program.
0: When are we going to get a look at the phase 3 data?
1: We announced that we will have top-line data in the first half of 2023, not too far away.
0: All right, so let's move on to mantra 2. This is the BASKET trial. Uh, it's currently in phase two. For this, I want to introduce a statement related to the trial found in the conclusion of your related poster at the recently held ACR, And you've already hinted at this. Quote, MDM2 amplification was mutually exclusive of TP53 mutations at copy numbers greater or equal than 12 and occurred in 1.1% of all cancers across multiple tumor types, supportive of a tumor agnostic therapeutic strategy for this drug. So. Given that observation, how does this affect your business plan?
1: This goes back to the underlying vision for the company as a precision oncology company. MDM2 gene amplification, we believe, is oncogenic. Now, amplification has always brought with it a challenge of what level of amplification matters. Amplification can mean a variety of things. And traditionally, amplification has been more of a challenge than just detecting a mutation. A mutation, you either have it or you don't amplification could be a spectrum. So what we did was evaluate the level of amplification that we think is going to be predictive of addiction, predictive of MDM2 dependence. And at copy number 12, we see that these tumor cells do not have a lot of other oncogenic drivers going on. There's not a lot of other things that could be leading to this mass proliferation and hence helping us identify that it's the MDM2 amplification that's the problem. And that's the reason we use the cutoff of twelve. Of course, the reasoning is, if it was a lower level of amplification, if there's a lot of other oncogenic effects going on, then an MDM2 inhibitor alone might not be sufficient. So we wanted to identify a cut point that we knew, or we felt strongly, that MDM2 inhibition could have a positive impact. In terms of the business model, we believe there is eight thousand patients per year in the U.S. across solid, advanced solid tumors. That exhibit this MDM2 gene amplification of greater than 12 copies. Mm-hmm. And if you have greater than 12 copies and you do not have p53 mutations, that suggests a tremendous need. And that poster also demonstrated the poor prognosis that patients have if they have this copy number of 12 or greater versus those patients have lower than 12. So it is a worsened situation to have that degree of gene amplification.
0: All right. Let's go back to the discussion of the trial itself, the basket trial. This is ongoing. As I say, it's a phase two. Has anything emerged from your basket, if you will, that indicates what tumor type you might be looking for as you go forward?
1: So, the objective of this study is to pursue a tumor agnostic label. We are enrolling patients of all tumor types, as long as they meet the genetic requirements. And it is a 65-patient study enrolling in the U.S. And we announced that we are looking to have interim data, early data, which represents about 10 patients by the fourth quarter of this year. And in those at least 10 patients, we're hoping to be able to show at least four months of follow-up so that we can get a read on the durability of response. So not just response rate, but the duration of response, which is a critically important factor that we believe is going to be needed ultimately for registration.
0: All right. Well, let's move on to mantra three. This is an investigation of RAIN32 in the Merkel cell. We've already discussed this briefly. Where are we in development here?
1: So mantra three is not going to start until later this year. So both mantra three and mantra four will start before year end. Okay. And so we're currently in the planning phase for both those studies.
0: Well, what would the protocol look like for the mantra three?
1: It'll be a single arm study looking at monotherapy of milademetan at our preferred dose and schedule, 260 milligrams on that same three days on, 11 days off schedule. Again, in those patients that test positive for the Merkel cell polyomavirus.
0: This is a fairly rare condition. Do you think there might be any issues in enrollment?
1: We don't think so. We think the enthusiasm around MDM2 inhibition in this space is strong. We believe other MDM2 inhibitors actually have shown activity in this space that will provide a lot of enthusiasm for clinicians, that MDM2 inhibition is an effective monotherapy. And we believe, based on the tolerability data of our drug, that many of those responses could be sustained responses and show strong durability. So we do believe that the enthusiasm is high.
0: Okay. And now on to mantra four. This is a planned phase one trial enrolling CDKN2A loss patients with RAIN32. Now this is a little different. This is going to be used in combination with immunotherapy, in this case Atezo, which is by Roche, who is actually working with you on this trial. Could you first describe what is the nature of the relationship between you and Roche? And then following that, why start with a combination?
1: Sure. The relationship with the Roche, this is a supply agreement. They're providing a tezolizumab at no cost to RAIN therapeutics. The intent of this study is primarily to confirm the safety of the combination and to ensure that there are no dose-limiting toxicities that require meaningful deviation of the doses of either drug. Mm-hmm. And the way that the trial is designed is that melidematan and will begin dosing at the full dose, at the expected full dose. So our 260 milligrams, three days on, 11 days off. If there are dose-limiting toxicities, then there would be a reduction of the melidematan dose. We've said that we do not expect there to be toxicities as MDM2 inhibition and checkpoint inhibitor therapy do not have overlapping toxicities. We do not expect them to be compounding. We have seen from competitors in the MDM2 landscape when they have combined with checkpoint inhibitors without any overlapping toxicities. So there is real-world clinical data that suggests that overlapping toxicity should not be an issue. Of course, we will see what happens in our study. And if, in fact, that's true, then we'll be able to quickly expand the study and turn this into a effectively a phase 230 patient signal finding study in patients with CDKN2A loss.
0: And again, we will be commencing this at the end of the year?
1: By the end of the year, correct.
0: Splendid. Okay. Well, that's all the sort of science clinical questions I have, but clearly and obviously investors have a lot of questions. You sit and you feel these questions all day long. Give me, I don't know, the top two questions that come up all the time.
1: The top question that comes up all the time is, why did Daiichi give up this drug?
0: <laughs> okay. I'm uh, listening.
1: It's, it's usually the first question. And typically, after we recount their clinical data with this molecule, we do believe it is exciting. And it's a good reason why Daiichi decided i license this program and, and certainly decisions that larger biotechs and big pharma have to make all the time, which is the other side of their pipeline has had extraordinary success, another program that they are leveraging in the ADC space, and they are targeting much larger patient populations than what initially liposarcoma suggested. So in terms of a reallocation of priorities and resources, they wanted to devote their time and money towards the other side of their pipeline. So despite they being very excited about this data set and this strategy and this molecule, they needed to prioritize the limits of their own resources.
0: All right. So how about a question related to your approach or the business plan itself?
1: Sure. So our approach is different in that many of the new trials that we're discussed today, we discussed four studies. The latter three studies was effective at the work of RAIN Therapeutics and our creative thinking around identifying MDM2 dependence. Daiichi had generated data in liposarcoma, which we've certainly leveraged for the phase three trial design and, and the rationale there. But we put in much of the time and the money to find new indications to expand upon the reach of milademetan beyond what the prior sponsor may have envisioned. And that's how we're adding value to the overall molecule and the developmental plan.
0: Okay. That sort of leads me into the next question regarding IP. This is a license, obviously. How broad is the license?
1: It's a global license worldwide for all uses. And the intellectual property, which was filed by Daichi Sankyo, provides composition and matter protection through 2032 without extensions. Adding four to five years of extensions puts us in the 2036-2037 vicinity. And that excludes many of the methods of use and additional IP that Rain will be able to file.
0: All right. Well, and finally, uh, I hate to ask it, but we always need to talk about money. What kind of runway are you looking at and what sort of conversations about you want to have investors in the coming year?
1: We have managed our finances, in my view, extraordinarily well. And when we completed the IPO in April of 2021, we now, we preserved a cash runway well into 2024. We said we have a cash runway through the first half of 2024, which allows us to complete all four of those studies that we just discussed today. And those four studies, again, the vast majority are at a the recommended dose and schedule. So there's not a lot of dose finding or dose schedule determination going on. We are largely looking for a signal that would take the program forward and certainly enough capital to complete the phase three trial for liposarcoma and if supported through an NDA filing.
0: All right, and then finally, perhaps most importantly, I am sick of looking at everyone on Zoom. I think everyone else is. Can I meet you in person at ASCO?
1: Absolutely, we look forward to getting back and shaking hands again and making up for some, some significant lost time.
0: Fantastic, I hope to see you there. Listeners, I hope to see you there as well. That is a wrap. Today, my guest has been Avanish Belunki. He is the co-founder, chairman and CEO of Rain Therapeutics. Avanish, thank you so much for joining me today.
1: Thank you, Neil, it's a pleasure. Thank,
0: thank you for listening to this week's Benchtop Bios. I hope that this episode will serve as yet another data point to guide you in your investment strategies. If you wish to hear more of Lifesize BenchStop Bios, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or Google. Also, if there's a company or a particular executive you'd like to get to know, I do take requests. Please send those to ncanadatlifesizeadvisors.com. Until next week, then, goodbye, or for that matter, good sell, whatever boosts your portfolio.